Father, we thank you for the book of Ezra. We thank you for this ancient text because this is a text that actually connects, as you know, as it was part of your plan for it too, this text connects, connects with what we've been talking about, which is um, the church reaching out to the world and what it looks like to even shake things up a bit. Um, answering the question as to when it's appropriate to take a public stand that perhaps could create some shockwaves in our world around us, even with our governing, governing authorities. And it's our opportunity to be faithful to the text and do what it says. And that's exactly what the people of God in Ezra 5 are doing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your law this morning, from your word, and God, that we would be equipped in the battle that you've called us to fight, fighting the good fight of faith. And I pray that we would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Ezra chapter 5 is where I would invite you to um, go to in your Bibles this morning. Uh, last week we took off a big hunk of Ezra chapter 4 going into chapter 5, and I want to do a little bit of review there to give us a running start. This is a text in Scripture, Ezra 5 is, where the people of God are taking a stand and moving forward to rebuild the temple in the southern kingdom. And by taking this kind of public stand, they are inviting the scrutiny of the government on God's mission and work. That's what we're always called to do. We're called to be salt and light in the world. And there's a, an amazing balance that the Bible always strikes in terms of being submissive to God's governing authorities and at the same time being a risk taker where you are willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ. In other words, deny yourself and put yourself out there no matter what the consequences may bring. And so finding that biblical balance is actually what we find in Ezra chapter 5 this morning. But just to back up again to give you a broader context of what Ezra is doing in chapter 4, he's striking this note, and it's the note that struck in our title. It's a dose of realism. In reality, we're all called to be at war as Christians. We're not picking a fight. But by siding with Christ, we are in a fight. We are in a struggle against spiritual forces that are waging war against us. We're, we're fighting battles even with a world system that is energized by Satan himself, the god of this world. And what Ezra does in chapter 4 is he gives a large landscape of battles that the southern kingdom of Israel faced as they tried to build the temple and build back Jerusalem. And a way for us to get our arms around chapter 4 again in a snapshot is to sort of modernize what Ezra was doing. Uh, I, I would assume that for many of us we'll from time to time watch a DVD or, or perhaps tape something on our DVR. Well, with a DVD it's specifically, there is something uh, that is called scene selection. Are you following me thus far? You know what I'm talking about. Scene selection is where you, you click a button, all of a sudden you have several boxes in front of you, and you have chapter one, chapter two, and as it goes, you can basically pick up in the story wherever you want to go. Well, Ezra, who I believe is the author here, is basically chronicling 50 years of history by basically pushing the scene select button to show a grand sweep of what he's talking about. Ezra is written like a story, but it's a history book, and he's giving a history lesson here. 
If you look at verses 1 to 5, he's talking about Israel in the southern kingdom as it was under the Persian king called Cyrus. Okay, remember Cyrus? He was the leader that sent Israel home back to build the temple once again. But then you move from Cyrus to another Persian leader. That's Darius. Okay, that's scene one. But then in verses 6 through 23... The scene selection button is hit, and he begins to talk about scene two, scene three, and scene four that are underneath different Persian leaders. He's fast-forwarding ahead here in a grand sweep, and he's moved from Cyrus, Darius, to verse six, Ahasuerus, which is the leader who is over the times of Esther. And then he moves ahead to Artaxerxes, which again is another fast-forward scene in this storyline that he's chronicling. In essence, if you move all the way from the time of Cyrus's um, beginning as an emperor all the way to the end of the rule and reign of Artaxerxes I, you've spanned about 98 years. But Ezra, as the author, lived about 50 of those years and in living color is talking about a battle that is waged in a grand sweep against the progression of this temple being built. Starts and stops is what we talked about last week. And we're called to be in a battle like that, aren't we? We sort of move forward in the Christian life. We take initiatives. And at times, the world is going to push back. And that's all part of God's plan. It's a plan that we're called to live with all along the way. We looked at last week how there were three different letters that were written from the southern kingdom area, from the Samaritans, from these adversaries, these oppressive governing leaders, and they were sending letters up to Persia to different rulers so that they would shut the work of God down. And we saw one of those letters that was sent was to Artaxerxes I, and he actually did shut down the work of God. And that, that's during the times of Nehemiah when the walls are being built. That's a fast-forward scene that we'll talk about later. But now, in verse 24 of chapter 4, Ezra is picking back up the thread of scene 1. Okay? You follow me so far? This is kind of a confusing chapter, but it's important to see that Ezra is going back to scene one in the story, and this is under the rule of Darius. You can see it there in verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. That connects with verse Verses 5 and 6, you see in verse 5 of chapter 4, where Ezra is talking at that point under the reign of Darius. This is the earlier chapter in the story or, or the earlier scene. And at verse 5, he's talking about how adversaries, people from the inside in the surrounding community in the southern kingdom were bullying the people, these 50,000 exiles that had come home to build the foundation, they were bullied to stop in the work of God. That's what's going on. They were bullied. Verse 4 talks about how the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. 
three participles there just to give you a grammar lesson. This is ongoing discouragement, ongoing bullying to make them afraid, ongoing bribing of government officials in Persia to get the work stopped, to step on their air hose. Remember we talked about two forms of uh, battle that Satan wages, the maneuver warfare and the attrition warfare. Attrition warfare is that long, like nagging opposition that just goes on and on and on. And that's the kind of warfare they were undergoing, and that's what we undergo as well. A constant nagging from adversaries to stop them. And guess what? The work stopped. Verse 24 again, the end of chapter 4. Then the work on the house of God, this is the foundation building project, in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased. You see those words? Until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, guess what? When did that second year pick up? When did the work start again? It starts 16 years later, and that 16 years is in the white spaces between verse 24 and the beginning of chapter 5. In other words, the southern kingdom, the, the people of Judah, they had built that foundation, and then they were bullied to stop, and they decided to let their hands drop and stop working for 16 years. They became lazy. They became stagnant. They were looking at man instead of God, and they stopped doing what God had designed for them to do. Have you ever been there? Can you relate to their stagnant state where their hands have dropped? That's, that's an idiom that's actually used in verse 4 of chapter 4. That's the word discouraged. It means that their hands dropped. Actually, in chapter 6, that word is used again later on when the work starts again, and it's the idea of your hands being raised and engaged. That's what we're talking about here. They stopped the work, and they needed something to start the work up again. It's interesting as we sort of dive into chapter 5, we're really looking at something that ties in with the whole discussion about Proposition 5 and what we're, what we're talking about. You know, there's, there's the issue of obeying God rather than man found in this text. And what I'm talking about is simply this. There is the time to take a stand spiritually. And when you take a stand spiritually, like for instance, if you've been not working on something for 16 years and you've been fitting in with the culture and just going with the flow and then suddenly you wake up and you start to work and get bold, guess what's going to happen? You're going to go under scrutiny. You're going to put yourself under a spotlight. You're going to put yourself under the microscope. Let me use all kinds of analogies here. You're going to be in the fishbowl, right? You're going to be sticking out like a sore thumb. That's what they do here, and they have to make a real choice in terms of whether or not it's worth it. Can I obey God rather than be bullied to just sit back in the work? And that's what we're talking about here in these verses. Let me read verses 1 through 5. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them supporting them. 
At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? Look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should, be, should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. You know, it, if we're going to sort of frame this whole section, chapters 4 and 5, under a broad outline, it's this. We're answering, how do you persevere through relentless spiritual warfare? Well, number one, you recognize that you're always at war. That was the point of verses 6 through 23. You're always at war. And then secondly, you're called to rest in the sovereignty of God. And we talked about last week how God gives glimmers of hope, even in the story here in chapter 4, that the work is going to begin again under God's provision and plan. There are provisos, just like we, we see the cross as our provision. There are provisions that were made in God's sovereign plan where the work was going to be reinitiated yet again. No matter what, Christ church is being built just like this temple, no matter what, it was going to be built. So we rest in the sovereignty of God. Point three is this, and it brings us to chapter five. And that is, we're not only to recognize that we'll be at war and that we're resting in the sovereignty of God, but point three is that we are to respond in faith to the word of God. That's exactly what they do here. 16 years of slumber and laziness. We're going to look at Haggai chapter 1. You know, they were distracted. Uh, the people of God were looking at their own houses and putting panels on their own houses and beefing up their own sort of mini economies, you know, and working in their family and, and doing their thing and ignoring the plan of God and the bigger picture kingdom advancement that they were supposed to be part of. So they were asleep. What's the one thing that can wake up 50,000 people from sleeping, the word, the word of God. Look at this in verse 1. Now the prophets, this is what turns the corner here. Haggai and Zechariah, they show up. They prophesy to the Jews. Just like in Ezra 1 verse 1, you have the, the children of Israel are being moved out of exile based on what? based on a prophecy that was given by Jeremiah, a preacher. Now you have, in verse 1 of chapter 5, two more prophets on the scene, contemporaries to Jeremiah, who are preaching the word of God. And you can read in detail what they preached in Haggai and the book of Zechariah. We'll look at that a little bit. But they're responding to the word of God. And look at the authoritative note that struck in verse 1. In the name, this prophecy came in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Point being, you have government authorities, you have adversaries who were sort of embedded around the culture, bullying people to stop the work. You have letters that are being written to snuff out the work of God, to bring more firepower against God's work. But the word of God supersedes all of that because God is behind the word. It's the word of God. It's a tricky balance, isn't it, to know what you're supposed to do in a culture that is against the word of God. 
it's, it's hard sometimes to understand exactly when you're supposed to take a stand. And the way that I sort of framed verses 1 through 5 is we're answering two questions. When are you supposed to obey God rather than man? When are you supposed to do that? When are you supposed to rock the boat? When are you supposed to make waves on the job? When are you supposed to make waves in your own marriage? When are you supposed to make waves with your teenager? When are you supposed to make waves with a government policy? When are you supposed to stick yourself out there and come under fire? Well, it's when you believe the Word of God is prompting you to do so. When the Word of God is patently clear on an issue. And they believed that they had biblical warrant to wake up and move, even though they were going to come under political or government review. It's interesting, you need to know in this context here that they weren't being told to stop doing the work at this point. Remember, this is scene one. This isn't what you know we, we read about that happens later on with the other scenes where they're actually shut down by Artaxerxes. This is under Darius, and they weren't being told to stop working at this point officially. They were being bullied to stop, and so they weren't being officially told to stop the work. And so they had a choice that they needed to make, and it's very similar to how we're living today. We're not being told not to worship God or Christ. We're not being told that we can't evangelize, but there are more subtle choices that we have to make along the way that either put us in the aggressive propagation of the gospel or where we're actually falling asleep like they were before, right? And so they're choosing to come out of sleep and put themselves forward in verse 1 and it parallels us well I think but I think it's important to strike the biblical balance of when are you supposed to obey God rather than man when are you supposed to make ways let me just direct us to Jesus's teachings for a minute in Matthew 22 20 through 22 you have scribes who and Pharisees who were trying to shut down Jesus's ministry and discredit him Caesar was viewed at that time, the Roman governing authority, he was viewed and according to their political system, supposed to be viewed and bowed down to like he was a god. And so they asked Jesus to trap him and trip him up. You know, what do you, what do you give your money to? Do you give it to Caesar or give it to God? And Jesus, you know, answered in a, obviously a perfect way and perfectly in the biblical balance um, of scripture saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In other words, you're supposed to act in an attitude of submission to the government, right? And at the same time, you're supposed to put yourself out there publicly by faith and as a kingdom citizen, right? And it's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, anyone who will follow me will deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What does that mean? It means you're following Christ, and if you go public and follow Christ, then that could mean that the government will kill you. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus and his followers, many of whom were martyred. Jesus himself submitted to Pontius Pilate, dying on the cross. So he was submitting, but he was also going public, obeying the Father's will every step of the way. You see the balance there? We're not undoing governing authorities by taking a stand. We're submitting, but then we're obeying the Lord at the same time, which at points can put us in prison. Like Paul, he was in prison through a lot of his ministry, right? 
He was submitting to governing authorities, but he was willing to take a stand if it meant at times breaking the law. We see this in Acts 5. If you would indulge me and just turn to Acts chapter 5, I'd like to show you the preeminent passage on this. This is Acts 5, 29. You have Peter who was publicly preaching. In verse 17, it says, The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Well, they were publicly preaching. They were thrown into prison. Angel of the Lord shows up, opens the doors or rescues them somehow. They're, the investigation is, is, is underway. Look at verse 23. They're, they're looking for the apostles. It says, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Where did they find him? Well, they found the apostles obeying what the angel of the Lord communicated. God's word, they were obeying God's word because it was patently clear on the matter. And they were preaching the gospel publicly no matter what. So what happened then? Verse 27, they were being questioned by the high priest. Verse 28, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So, again, they're submitting by being imprisoned at points, and then they're still being bold at the same time. Romans 13, it says, submit to the governing authorities that have been established by God. God established government. He works through government. We need to respect Christian government leaders. We need to respect non-Christian, unbelieving governing authorities because it's an institution set up by God. But there will be times where we are challenged to speak boldly, no matter what the cost You know, here's a quote. It's from uh, Christian Apologetics. I don't know if it was on the screen yet or not. It says, the simple answer to the question of obeying God rather than man is this, is that Christians are to obey human law except where the human law violates God's law. Our supreme duty is to obey God since God tells us to also obey human laws. We should, but when they come in conflict, we are to obey God rather than men. I hope that helps a little bit. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? Because the scripture isn't always patently clear with when you're supposed to go for it publicly and when you're supposed to lay back. And I think that it's important at that point, if you're confused as to when to take a stand, to go and seek counsel with spiritual leaders or with respected older men and women in the faith, maybe more spiritually mature people, and test your situation against scripture with them. Because the Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's what? Wisdom. And we need that biblical balance of how to be humble and submissive, but also be bold. How to be, you know, shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves, as the scripture says. Well, let's let's move on here in the text. What do you find here back in Ezra? Back in Ezra, you have... 
these people moving out on their mission. And it says, they came in the name of God, verse 1, who was God of Israel, who was over them. And then there's a response to the word of God here in verse 2. It says, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to build the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. You know what overrode this passivity? What ruled in the hearts of these people? We're not talking about just two or three people that stopped the building project. This is 50,000 people and, and then some who had stopped building, who started building again. And it was the word that transformed them to do this. During the Reformation, um, where you have people like Martin Luther who were preaching, and then after him you have John Calvin who was assigned to preach at Geneva. Even uh, where it was very dangerous during that time, people were fleeing parts of Switzerland to go to Geneva specifically to come for um, a safe haven because people were dying because the gospel was being preached and it was going contra to the government at that time. The government who had sort of a, a religious protection on what they believed and, and the church was sort of coming out from under that and saying you can, you can possess the word of God and the freedom to know God personally and individually directly to him and you don't have to go through priests to get to God. You don't have to go through the government to get to God. And so John Calvin created this safe haven called Geneva where people could come and hear the word of God and, and know him personally. And there was a Latin phrase that, that was um, sort of bannering this time period. And it was post tenebrox lux. And that Latin phrase simply meant that the darkness of the, the Middle Ages was over and now it was time for light. In other words, specifically that Latin phrase post tenebrox lux is after darkness light. And the light came from what? The word of God. John 1.1. 1, 1. All things were created by what? The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came into being through that Holy Word. That's Jesus' Word spoken, which created everything. Psalm 33 says that all things were created by the Word of God. Psalm 33, 10 and 11 says everything, all creation is governed by the Word of God. When Joshua led the children of Israel across the Jordan and they established the promised land back in ancient times, God specifically said to Joshua, meditate on the word of God day and night. It's the word that inspires people to do things. You know, I really cannot, and I know this to be true, I cannot inspire you really to do anything. Anything that's meaningful or lasting or stands for eternity. I talked to somebody before the service that said just a couple weeks ago he came to know Christ personally as his Savior and his Lord. I can't do that. I can't make that happen. I can't manufacture that. Neither can you. It's always God's Spirit using his word to transform hearts, to multiply gospel growth. And that's what I want his word to do in our lives as a community, as a local church. There's every reason in the world to ignore um, religion or ignore programs, but we cannot ignore the word of God. And what the word call, calls us to do and inspires us to do, drives us to do, impels us to do from the inside.
out. It's the word. All great revivals were spawned by the word of God. Any true revival is generated by the truth, always. Jonathan Edwards and, and the First Great Awakening was reading manuscripts where the Word of God was going out and shaking people up, and then Whitfield shows up, George Whitfield, and he's this open-air preacher. Their personalities couldn't be any more different from one another, and yet the Word of God was going out, creating a dynamic spiritual movement and revival in our country, the effects that we still feel today. This is why I'm committed to expository preaching. I'm not in any way sort of um, racing around my office wondering, you know, what next illustration I'm going to use or what's going to grab you or what's the next passage that could thrill you or motivate you or excite you. I'm just sort of locked into the next thing that Ezra is doing right now. And so, you know, I'm studying whatever's coming next. And so when it connects with our society like it is this morning and what we're talking about now, it doesn't surprise me because the Spirit of God is gelling these things and communicating to us through His truth. It's the Word. Speaking of which, let's look a little bit at what Haggai was actually saying to motivate these people. He's just an instrument in God's hand. If you turn over to Haggai chapter 1, you know, it gives a little context. He's right during the second year of Darius. It picks up right where we are in Ezra chapter 5. It's the sixth month on the first day. It's very time-specific here. And it says that the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel. In other words, God is moving through Haggai, the mouthpiece here, to talk to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. And then verse 2, it says what he said. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies, this house lies in ruins? So he's giving them a rebuke, just saying, listen, wake up, wake up. You know, you've, you've been asleep for 16 years. You're spiritually snoozing here on God's plan and and you're actually consumed with building your own house and your own lifestyle with paneled houses more than the work of God and so Haggai is being used and he's saying listen verse 5 consider your ways in other words look you're not being blessed right now your life isn't filled with the fruit of blessing because you're asleep spiritually Verse 6 talks about how they had sown much, but they're harvesting little. Literally goes on to build an illustration about how you're collecting money, but it's going through the bottom of your purse because there's holes in it. You can see that in verses 6 and following. The, verse 10, it talks about how the dew is withheld from the earth and you're in drought, verse 7. But then verse 14 says that the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of, jo of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit, look at this, of all the remnant of the people, all 50,000 plus people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The word of God works. It's a sword. It's a, it's a dagger. Jeremiah calls it a rock. It's likened to a splash of water that refreshes you in the soul. Hey, if you're dead spiritually, I mean, you believe you're alive, but, but you're just lying dormant spiritually, my encouragement is for you to read the longest chapter in the Bible, and that is Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you were to take a highlighter through it and, and circle every place where it says revive or restore, 
your whole chapter would be just about yellow in your Bible because the Word of God is the means God's use, God uses always to revive a sleepy heart and to wake you up. You say, oh, look, I, you know, I don't know how to get out of the slumber or how to get off go. I don't know how to wake up. Well, the Bible is super clear about itself. It just says, read the Word. And if you're not reading the Word and you're not meditating on it day and night, if it's not alive to you, then that's why you're not alive to God right now. You need to listen to what He says. I just was thinking of, you know, the Mount Transfiguration where you have uh, James and John and Peter on that mount with Jesus. And, you know, Elijah and Moses show up, and Peter's excited to build two tabernacles for Elijah and Moses and one for Jesus. And, you know, let's sort of put the law and the prophets and whatever Jesus is doing as Messiah on display. And God's voice intervenes in that moment. He says, no, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's what we're called to do. Uh, it's the word of God is what we're supposed to listen to. It cuts through all of the other options that we could choose and prioritizes the main things of life, which is the things of eternal life. Go back to Ezra chapter 5. Again, we could look at Zechariah. We won't right now. Verses, um, verse 11 of chapter 1, all things remained at rest, and Zechariah was waking them up as well. He rebuked the people and said their hearts were diamond hard at that point, but they needed to see this small thing, rebuilding the temple, as a greater thing. That's chapter 4, verse 10. We'll look again at the text in Ezra chapter 5 verse 2 you have something that's very interesting where there's more here than meets the eye it says the prophets of God were with them supporting them prophets here it's plural it's probably more than Haggai and Zechariah you have the preachers you have the pastors that are coming around the people and they're supporting them you're getting you know God's voice coming upon them over them authoritatively and then you get the buttressing of the the church leadership to say hey keep going keep Keep working. Build again. It's time to come out of slumber. It's time to work together. And you know what they were doing when they were supporting them is they were building them up and saying, listen, we have integrity in this. The, the people of God here are not going rogue against the government. They're just saying, listen, let's think back. and Remember, Cyrus gave us that decree a long time ago. We're, we're submitting to governing authorities. Even if people have forgotten about that, even if we've been bullied to stop, we're going to do it anyway and work again in a submissive way that's going to put us out there, out front, and we're going to take fire for it, but we're going for it. This is a word-filled, inspired group. And you know why I know they're, they're, they have momentum on their side? It's because they actually did um, attract the attention of a government leader that was the top of the area west of the Euphrates at this point. This guy in verse 3, Tatanai. Look at this. This sort of brings us to our second point here. What are you supposed to expect when you obey God rather than man? That's in verses 3 and 4. Their obedience was strong, and it was so strong and word-filled and momentum-filled that Tatanai, the governor, well, this is a guy who carried a massive jurisdiction over Samaria, over, over basically the Persian society west of the Euphrates. This is the top leader who has the immediate direct um, pipeline to Darius. And he's going to write a letter. That's basically what um, chapters 5 and 6 is all about, a letter that's written and a response because of it. 
Well, Tatnai, the governor, verse 3, of the province beyond the river, and Sheth Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, quote, okay, the, the governor is talking directly to the children of Israel, and he says, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? I mean, they, they want to know, listen, give us the paperwork for what you're doing because you guys are very excited about this project now. We, we need to know what, is, what has spawned this. We need, to know, we need to also know the names of the people who are in charge of this movement. Just to skip ahead to where we'll cover next week, but the letter that he sends to Darius, Tatanai sends a letter. It begins in verse 6. Look at verse 8. It describes this work that's being done. It says, Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. In other words, Tatanai is saying this. And there was some conspiracy that was happening outside of God's people right now against Darius. And so Tatanai is going, is this another sort of overthrow movement right here? Because it doesn't look like they're building a tabernacle. It looks like they're building a fortress. They're building a tank here with huge stones and timber that's going through the walls. What are they up to? We might need to step on the air hose of this one, right? Remember opposition, you know, the sober reality. We're always at war. Well, Tatanai starts to freak out and say, listen, we need to shut this thing down. It's because the people of God were motivated, and this motivation brought opposition. Opposition. But it also brought something else. Look at verse 5. It brought blessing. And when you take a stand for God, you're not only going to receive opposition, but you're going to also receive blessing. Sometimes it's just spiritual blessing. And we're persecuted and we don't see God in his hand, but other times we actually do see God's hand of protection. And they did at this point in verse 5. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until stop them until the report should reach Darius. Now listen, look up at chapter 4, verse 24. Two words are used here. The work of the, on the house of God that is in Jerusalem, it stopped. Stopped for 16 years, and it ceased. It stopped and it ceased. And here, 16 years later, we see that the work was not stopped this time. Why? Because God's eye, his watchful care, was on this project, and he wanted it to succeed. Do you believe in God's watch care in your life? It really is the difference between being bold as a Christian or being asleep as a Christian. If we believe God's on our side, if he's for us, who can be against us, then we'll speak. If we don't believe in that moment where we could have that conversation or go out loud with our faith, if we don't believe God is watching us in that moment, we're not going to say something. If we believe God is watching us, over us, his eye is on us, like he watches the sparrows hop as he numbers the hairs on our head, if we believe in that kind of watch care, then guess what? We'll be bold as lions. The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. They didn't stop them. Now, there was a report that we're going to get into next week that was given. This letter was given reporting on what they were doing. 
and then an answer comes back by a letter in return and the work is going on and and this work is um, going on it's really accounted for in terms of two months two or three months you say really was correspondence that quick back in the ancient world well just to give you a little historical lesson I thought was interesting the Persian leader Darius actually created which was something that was called the Royal Highway during that time. It was a 1,700-mile-long highway that had its own sort of um, letter correspondence, almost, you know, Pony, Pony Express version of the mail being delivered back and forth. Actually, the invention of horseshoes came out of this royal road being um, invented in the first place because horses would wear out their hooves racing in 15-mile increments to get the mail back and forth. And so, in the providence of God, this letter was going to be sent in short order to Darius, and then a response was sent in short order back. What's the significance of that? Well, it just gives us a context for the fact that they were building with strong momentum over a short period of time for the work of God. They were working hard. Are we willing to work you know, whether it's uh, taking a stand in the political arena or sort of building our local church. You know, I was talking to a, a couple in our church who've begun a community group that you can see listed in your bulletin. They said, you know, we started last week or a couple weeks ago and we had one person come. And I said, you know what? Keep going on with that. And I would encourage you, listen, if you're not in community, if you're not in a Sunday school class, if you're not in a Bible study, if you're not in a home group, you don't have to do them all, but you need something more than just this. I can't be the instrument in your life alone for spiritual growth. If you want to grow spiritually, it has to become more of a 24-7 commitment. You've got to have the Word of God in your life, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout your life, because that's what, that's what sparks us to take stands in the kingdom building of God. And it's, it's also um, part of what inspires us to multiply our faith out to people as we make disciples being on mission. Let's look at a few application points. Number one, the word of God is God's supreme agent to revive the sleeping heart. Again, just like if you were sick, you know, doctors say take medicine, get rest, eat good food. You say, I can't get well. I can never do that. Well, you know, there could be something that's more wrong with just the, the average, you know, scenario. But if you sleep, if you rest, if you take care of yourself, if you eat right, if you take your medicine, then what's going to happen? You'll probably get better. And in the same way, it's that way with Scripture. If you'll just crack open your Bibles. You know, a great way to evangelize, I just thought of that this this week. I was sort of thinking, what's the key to evangelism? You know, I, this is what I think my number one method is for evangelism. Invite somebody to come to church or come to a Bible study. It's not just, it's not just um, man, the sound sounds a lot better, doesn't it? Sorry, I adjusted it. Anyway, um, it's not just, um, by the way, giving a good gospel appeal in the moment. It could be that you need to go to someone that, that looks spiritually dead and you say, listen, will you come to a Bible study with me? Or can we get into a Bible study together? You know? 
and that can be evangelism. There are so many times where you hear people's testimonies where they say, you know, I didn't know I wasn't a Christian until I was in Bible study, and all of a sudden I woke up to the fact that I wasn't alive spiritually, and then I found out I loved Jesus, and they got going in their hearts. Number two, the Word of God is what softens and enables the heart to yield to the authorities in your life. You might say, look, I don't, I don't, you don't know the boss that I have in my life, the employer I have, or the situation I'm in. You don't know what kind of fire I would come under if I said something um, of a gospel nature in my home or to my kids. But the Word of God is what emboldens us to do that, and so it's important to let the Word of God do that. Number three, the Word of God offers necessary wisdom to strike the balance of submission and action. We talked about this already. There's a time to be bold, and there's a time not to. There's a time where Paul would preach the gospel and be imprisoned, and there, would be, there were times where he was lowered in a basket, you know, by nightfall to escape persecution. When are we supposed to do which when are we supposed to say something and when are we not supposed to say something? Well, the Word of God gives wisdom and balance and direction all along the way. And if you need help with that, appeal to other people with the Word of God at center to have wisdom for what you should do. Number four, the Word of God is what God uses to remind us of His constant watchful care. If you are afraid, if you feel like you've been bullied out of the fight, go back to the Word of God for your confidence, for your direction. It is, as Job said in Job 23, the Word of God is more than my necessary food. Is the Word of God your milk and your meat? It better be. It has to be because it says that it is. And it's what makes us bold in the Christian life to take stands, even stands like rebuilding the foundation publicly, like Ezra 5 speaks of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that your truth is what sets us free. Lord, we are in bondage at points even in our own hearts as we battle against our flesh. We sometimes can fall prey to the bondage of uh, Satan's influence though he can never be Lord over us again, he can influence us and he can draw us into wrong thinking where we could become discouraged and disheartened and sort of letting our hands drop where we don't want to be part of the work and the mission anymore. And instead of being bullied by Satan, I pray that we would be emboldened by your word, that we would submit to your truth first as we submit to governing authorities and that, Lord, we would be humble instead of proud. We would be gracious and marathon running instead of pragmatic sprinters who are trying to affect change in the flesh. I pray that we would be submissive in balance and bold with the truth. Thank you for your word. May it carry us on this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for our final.